0: Today at Reader's Corner, Azeem Azar, author of The Exponential Age, how accelerating technology is transforming business, politics and society. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Our guest today believes we are living in the first exponential age. In his new book, The Exponential Age: How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics and Society, Azeem Azar offers a revelatory new model for understanding how technology is changing the world. He posits the idea of an exponential gap in which technological changes rapidly outpace our society's ability to catch up with them. Azim Azar is an award-winning entrepreneur, analyst, strategist, and investor. His work has frequently appeared in The Guardian, and he was The Economist's first-ever internet correspondent. Azhar produces Exponential View, the leading newsletter and podcast on the impact of technology on our future economy and society. You've got to check that out. I highly recommend it. Azim Azar joining us all the way from London, England, welcome to Reader's Corner.
1: Bob, it's wonderful, wonderful to be here. So nice of you to invite me on. Thank you.
0: Well, Azim, let's start with the basics of the exponential age. What makes that different from our fairly recent past? And uh, how does that cause uh, the exponential gap?
1: Well, the exponential age is uh, the name I give for the time that I think we all feel (laughs) that we are living in today, which (laughs) is that, you know, suddenly the biggest companies in the world aren't oil companies or banks or car companies. They're sort of wacky businesses using AI and data and the Internet. And we feel that things suddenly appear in our in our daily lives that we, we didn't know of before. TikTok, what is TikTok? We wouldn't have talked about it two years ago, and now it's everywhere. And that transitions can happen in other industries, outside of the computing industry, very quickly. So, for example, in the icy land of Norway, uh, only five years ago, one in five cars that was sold was an electric vehicle. And as, as of September 2021, Nine out of 10 cars that were sold was a battery-powered electric vehicle. The change happened really quickly. And these sudden accelerating shifts are happening across our economy, driven by some technologies that are improving really, really rapidly at double-digit rates every single year, compounding year after year like the savings account we all wish we had, but sadly don't have in these days of low interest rates. And that Rapidity with which they improve technologically changes the way companies behave, it changes the structure of our work, our economies, and the relationships within our societies. And technology has always done that, but it used to do that over the course of decades and centuries. But at this moment in time, with these very rapidly moving technologies, the change is coming faster than our normal institutions can adapt. And it's that gap between the speed of adaptation and the speed of technological change that I call the exponential gap. And it is what I think is the one of the pressing drivers of a lot of economic and political and geopolitical tension that we see in the world.
0: So how does our dependence on the linear world make it difficult to understand and cope with the exponential age? And I might point out that this is not just uh Individual consumers of technology who are sitting down at their computer and get lost someplace because of some new rainstorm that somebody came up with. But it's also people like McKinsey and Microsoft CEO, both of whom you point out in your book, uh, missed a few things.
1: Yeah, Well, ab- absolutely. And it's because we live in a world where most things happen in a linear fashion. You know, the uh, that your child uh, is six, one birthday, seven the next, eight the next. It's very, <laughs> very predictable. In the exponential age, things are improving at these compounding rates of 30, 50% per annum. If you look at silicon chips, since the 1960s, the amount of power you get out of a silicon chip for the same dollar that you spend, has increased by about 40 to 45% every year year after year for decades and and that's a that's really hard for the human mind to uh accommodate and we don't necessarily understand the rapidity of these changes uh, and so you know one great example is you know back in the uh, in the 80s when the greatest management consultants of all, McKinsey, were brought in to AT T to help size the the, the the nascent mobile phone industry. And at the time, they they made their estimates, but their forecast was off by a matter of a hundredfold—not ten or twenty percent, but really, really significant. And, and the reason is that in in a linear world, we sit around with linear thinking. But for the first time. We have exponential processes all around us. Now, we've all lived through and are living through the COVID pandemic, and there are aspects of when the virus spreads that it is in an exponential phase. We've seen it on the nightly news, the the number of new cases following that vertical spike. And it's interesting. I think we can all reflect on the fact that so many of us found it hard to estimate what next week's level of infections was going to be, because it was growing exponentially. And we were finding it hard, even though we were living it, we were living it through our lockdowns or our restrictions or our mask mandates or having to work from home. And despite that visceral experience, despite the news media presenting the data, despite the data coming directly from the scientists, we still personally find it hard to understand exponential processes. And it turns out that our institutions uh, the, the companies, the laws, the, the the churches, the international organizations are not designed to contend with this rapidity of change either. So they struggle at these moments of time as well.
0: And I think you do point out that in the case of the pandemic, it perhaps is a good example of how the power of technology actually worked in our favor when you stop and think about how long it took to get that vaccine.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the pandemic encapsulates uh, so many aspects of the exponential age, right? On the first hand, our inability to sort of understand what happens when a process goes exponential, which, which is a spread. But on the other hand, the reason we were able to get vaccines out and in the arms of people within, you know, a year or so of the disease being identified rather than perhaps ten or twenty or thirty years was that we have some very advanced technologies, all of which are and by my definition exponential technologies that allow us to create vaccines faster than ever before and i 'll just step through a few of them if I may um, you know the 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 virus 's genome sequence was released on the sixth of January two thousand and twenty on an open access website which allowed lots of researchers to download that sequence. And within a matter of 31 days, um, the Moderna had its first vials of a vaccine candidate. And that is incredible, considering that vaccines used to take us years to produce. And Moderna was able to do that because they could take make use of advanced um Exponential platforms like genome sequencers and then machine learning and big data systems, all of which enabled the creation of this vaccine candidate and then the delivery of this this vaccine to happen in much, much faster time. So for me, what we see within the The COVID pandemic is the first pandemic of the exponential age, from the discovery of the the condition, the way in which we sequenced it, the way in which we were able to produce vaccines, the way in which we were able to identify therapeutics and treatments like remdesivir, the way that we were able to also live our lives. Because compared to uh, the the previous coronavirus, the SARS-CoV that affected Asia, we now live in a time of fast broadband and Netflix and Zoom and the ability for much larger parts of the population to work and live remotely. So it it is emblematic, I think, of the moment that we're going through.
0: You know, you mention in your book the corporate titans of today, uh, referring to them as the superstars. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not the first time we've had superstars uh, dominating the marketplace in the 20th century, we can name companies, as you did in your book, like Standard Oil. But tell us what differs these superstars from the past. And and maybe it has something to do with the network effect and the incredible interaction and combination of new technologies.
1: Yeah, it is a, it's a really remarkable time. And, and it made me, as I did this analysis over the past few years, rethink what I knew about, about business. So what the superstars of today have, the Apples and the Amazons and then the Facebooks and Googles is they are demonstrating uh, power in the market that increases as they get bigger. Traditional industrial companies would find it harder and harder to get bigger because the cost of doing business became harder. It just became just that much harder to acquire the millionth ton of raw materials than the first ton of raw materials you needed. Whereas the, the exponential age firm sits on top of uh, what a network effects. The network effect means that the more customers you have, the more value you provide to your other customers. If you think about a phone network, a phone network is not much use when only two of us are on it. But when five of us are on it, it's really helpful. When 5,000 of us are on it, it's so much more helpful. And once you lock people into one network, that's the one that, that everyone else wants to get on. Now, what's really distinct about today's exponential age firms, is they all have network effects at the heart of them. But their network effects don't involve having to dig up thousands of miles of road and put uh, telephone lines or cables into every home and homestead and village and and farm in, in Idaho. They operate over the internet and they have an additional wrinkle, which is that on top of connecting lots of customers, They gather lots more data and modern AI systems, which are at the heart of these businesses, get smarter the more data there is. So there's a second network effect called the data network effect that helps these companies that use a lot of AI get better and better. And those two things combine to create not one, it's not just standard oil, but several companies that are not only enormous, but on top of being enormous, their share of the stock market is higher proportionately than in any time in history for the biggest companies in America. And yet they're still growing at 15, 20, 30% per annum. They're growing as if they're young teenagers, not as if they're already the largest firms in the world. And that is what makes them superstar companies.
0: You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Azim Azhar, author of The Exponential Age, how Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. So what are the next steps for the so-called trustbusters, a term that was used from the old days, I suppose? How, mm-hmm. how might they they get their handle on these gargantuan companies that are creeping toward monopoly?
1: I think there's something very sensible in your question there, which was this idea of creeping towards monopoly. Because in 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 many cases, these companies don't fall foul of the traditional recent history thinking about what monopolistic behavior is. Monopolistic behavior is often seen from the perspective of are you price gouging your your customers because you control the market? And that's not really what happens when you use Google, which is this incredible superpower we can all use and we get to use it for free. But the issues are more about how these scale of these companies ends up distorting markets because of the power they have. Are they distorting markets by reducing competition? Are they distorting markets by making it harder for suppliers to reach customers? Um, And that's often an accusation that is applied to, you know, the companies like Google and Facebook that control advertising networks or Amazon that controls retail distribution. And that means I think you need a different way of thinking about this if you're a trust buster and and the issue here for me really the starting point is if concentrations of power in society are are bad and I think most of us agree that they are they can be anti-competitive they can be anti-entrepreneurial they can be hard for civil society as well as hard for the ordinary business person then we need to do something about that that balance of power and the kind of things that I come up with is to say Look, it's not so much about breaking up these large companies. It's about saying, where do they're in their operations as their power cause problems? And where have they started to look, not like young dynamic companies, but like essential digital utilities, things that we need to function in a modern society as much as we need clean water and electricity, because our dynamic economies in the United States and Europe have often recognised that if you're a utility, you have to behave with a certain amount of probity, right? You have to invest in your network. You have to serve everybody. You can't use monopolistic pricing. And so I think that we can look at these companies in particular ways and say, look, you're obviously innovative. You've brought a lot to our economies, but you are starting to stifle innovation and you're starting to stifle entrepreneurialism. So in the parts of your business That are more like utilities. We're going to start to treat you a bit like utilities. We're going to ask for you to be more transparent. We're going to ask for you to allow competitors to use your infrastructure. We're going to ask for you to invest in that infrastructure. And for the parts of the business, of your business that are still dynamic, those parts you can run in a creative and entrepreneurial way as you have in the past. And that those obligations should apply on the basis of how big the firms are so that you still have an opportunity as a smaller firm to become big. But as you become big, as you become an adult, the responsibilities of real life need to pass on to you.
0: One of the insights I really enjoyed reading in your book was your mention of these smaller companies that are absorbed by these large companies and the role that plays in, in stultifying the innovation of the day that, uh, in a sense, these smaller companies often are the brainstorms, so the small brainstorms that can turn into large brainstorms. But when they're overtaken, perhaps not so much.
1: Yeah, the, well, there's definitely a, a a challenge there. If you look at um, the case of uh, sort of Google, certainly, but also Facebook, a number of their most dynamic, forward-looking products and services w- arrived through acquisitions. But it, it's not just that you know Facebook acquired a, a WhatsApp or an Instagram when those companies were tiny. By the way, I mean Instagram had a dozen employees when it was acquired. It's also that they become a a, a talent magnet, and this is particularly the case when we look at highly in demand skills like artificial intelligence and computer science. Um, these large firms become the place where academia goes to right so so Mm -hmm. postdocs don't try to get tenure they they look to become in-house researchers in one of the big five silicon valley firms and the research shows that while these companies are starting to dominate the research output in in ai the breadth the level of exploration the level of creativity and innovation that their researchers do is much less wide than the, the breadth you get from academia. In other words, academia is better for free-flowing long-term research, which is critical for national competitiveness. Whereas once an academic goes into industry, their skills get put into the short-term goals of the company. And there's a more fundamental challenge beyond, beyond that, which is that the way that we create amazing artificial intelligence researchers or workers is we teach them those skills from great AI professors and if the AI professors are working in large companies they're not teaching those skills so there's a more there's a more challenging problem that as insofar as it pertains to what happens to talent in the medium to long term when industry sucks it all out for essentially short-term profit-seeking
0: you know, in this era of globalization, uh, we talk so much about the breakdown of global supply chains. That's been accentuated by the pandemic. Uh, you mm. suggest, interestingly enough, that in the exponential age, there will be a return to local. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. Yeah. I. I mean. I. Th- I think it's a really interesting, interesting dynamic. And the, you know, my lens is as much about is about technology pardon me, I'll say that again, you know, the lens I take is driven primarily through technology, but you can use the lens of um, national security and economic security, and you'll come to a similar conclusion. Um, When you look at some of the exponential technologies, what they allow is um, local production. So when you think about um, solar power or wind power, that doesn't that that can just happen locally you don 't need to generate your electricity by moving uh, millions of barrels of oil uh, or you know tons and tons of natural gas around the world or across pipelines you You can just do it locally you know by the city or in the city. You also have technologies like um, vertical farming and cellular agriculture which allow for the local growing of lettuces and watercress and soon um, types of animal proteins um, so that you, c- you don't need to have a huge supply chain for uh, your, your agricultural products. Things can be grown much more locally and then further down the track there's another exponential technology of 3D printing which many of us will have seen in sort of a concept mode but as that gets more and more powerful it's improving at about 30% per annum we should be able to 3D print the key parts and components that we need to keep our businesses and our homes running locally. And what that means is that you don't, you have a, you have pressure, downward pressure on needing to ship energy from one part of the country or one part of the world to another. Downward pressure on the need to, as we do in the UK, uh, get our, our tomatoes from Spain when they can be grown locally. Downward pressure on the need to to move every one of your finished manufacturers across these large wide scale supply chains. And that's just enabled by the by the technologies. And then of course, as I as I suggested There are now economic imperatives based on people's experience of COVID that governments are worried about economic security, about not being able to keep their industries moving because they're so reliant on their supply chain. And something that's better than just in time becomes just in case. And what could be better than that than being able to get your energy, produce your food and produce parts of your finished manufacturers absolutely locally?
0: You're listening to Azim Azar. He's the creator of Exponential View. That's a podcast. And he's the author of The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. Well, we've learned in The Exponential Age that there are autonomous weapons out there uh, that can create a world disorder. It can create nation-state disorder. It can mm-hmm. create uh, corporate disorder. And um, I wonder if you could, could discuss for a moment just uh, the the nature of those those attacks and and how we might deal with it not only at the company level but even mm. at the individual level i think you identified finland as a country that's uh. decided to get really serious about digital literacy
1: yeah you know so what's going on here really is that the new technologies that we view that we use that have made our lives in many cases more convenient have also made us more Vulnerable. When I was a child, uh, the burglar would come in through the back door uh, or through the first floor window. Um, Today, the criminal can come in through any email address, through hacking my smart light bulb from pretending to be my bank when they send me an instant message. So we are we are all more accessible and more vulnerable. And the same is true for companies. You know, every device connected to the Internet is a is a potential route in. So we have these castles that have very permeable walls. Our attackers have new methods as well. They don't need to send tanks rolling over Central Europe. They can send unarmed drones, as we recently saw in the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. They can uh, use cyber attacks, and we've seen a lot of those flow in from you know Russia and China in the last few years. But they can also hit us as citizens, because for the first time, we as citizens represent the front line. An adversary can reach us through disinformation campaigns across social media. Um, and, you know, it is a, a a general's dream. You know, divide the house of your enemy, your opponent, before you have to fire a shot, and half of the battle is won. And I think we've seen the growth in disinformation campaigns created by dozens of nations now. It's not just the sort of big one or two we sometimes think about, partly because they are cheap, and cheap because they're digital, they don't involve sending planes and soldiers and risking lives, and partly because they're effective. And so the question is, what do you do at this point? You know, you can't rely on, on your military for every To protect you at every point. And that's where the kinds of things that Finland and Taiwan are doing around creating a sense of literacy, a sense of resilience towards these types of bits of disinformation. In the case of Finland, it's teaching kids and adults critical thinking skills so that you you do learn how to think critically and not take at face value what you perhaps see on social media you you get taught how to recognize fake news in taiwan where they obviously have these digital threats from china as well as other threats from china they have moved beyond digital literacy to the idea of media competence to teach people not just to be consumers but also creators of journalism, and the idea being that once you know how to create it, you recognize what the markers of good quality and poor quality are. I think it's such a long journey, uh, but, but a really, really important one.
0: Azim, uh, as an old policy wonk who was in government for a while, uh, I thought the most important question you raised in your book had to do with this issue of these new private rule makers like Facebook encroaching on what was once the public sphere of decision-making. And, I, you know, I thought back to the day when the Supreme Court justice said, uh, you know, there are limits to free speech, and um, there you can't yell fire in a crowded theatre, for example. Well, uh, that was a governmental decision. But these days, uh, it's changed, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it's really changed. Uh, it's changed because... Our interface with the real world, the things that we want to do now goes through private corporations who, who make decisions. And some of those decisions are purely based on profit and some are made on for other reasons and democratically accountable uh, officials are not able to step in and, and shape them. But I think this is a really hard question because it isn't always clear that we would necessarily disagree with, um, the interventions from the large companies. One of my favorite examples happened during the, the COVID pandemic. So when the pandemic started, there was a lot of um, desire to engage in contact tracing because in the early stages, if if someone's had a coronavirus and they've exposed other people, you wanna track those other people and warn them ahead of time. And because we all have phones, the idea became very clear in lots of countries around the world that perhaps we could use the phone as a mechanism for contact tracing. And Bob, there were two ways of doing this. One was a a centralized mechanism where a person's name and phone number and location would be shared with the government, as well as all of their contacts. It's it's like um the dream of the secret police of a communist country <laughs> uh, from the seventies. The other approach was a decentralised mechanism where all of that information would be hidden and unknown, but anyone who had been exposed would get an alert. And that second approach had met all of the public health requirements, but it wouldn't have given, you know, the FBI or the UK police force any additional information, right, of where people were. And in most many countries, governments elected to try the first approach, the centralised approach. And what Apple and Google said was, well, no, we're happy to help you and we will enable contact tracing on our phones. And Apple and Google controlled the operating system on basically all the billions of handsets in the world. But we will do it in this decentralised, privacy-safe, citizen-respecting manner, which meets all the public health requirements. And it's really interesting there because from my perspective the right policy was obviously the decentralized version that respected our privacy but that isn't what the democratically elected governments wanted but they didn't have the capabilities to enforce what they did want which was the highly invasive centralized systems and so that gets to the heart of that paradox of private rule makers and who and how should they be brought should they should bring them into the fold where, where are their obligations, their social license to operate? And where should that discussion happen? And where should it happen when the lawmakers themselves may be, uh, to use a soccer term, really far behind the ball?
0: Azim, you address in your book, in the closing of your book, what some folks think is the inevitability of technological progress, that it's somehow on its own trajectory beyond our control. You think otherwise
1: i think I think otherwise. I think there are underlying dynamics to the technology that are really intimately human that we are ingenious we 're creative we 're also a little bit lazy, so we 're always looking for shortcuts, so there is some part of the heartbeat of technology that is about trying to make things easier for ourselves that we continue uh, to, to strive for, but the actual shape of the technology is really dependent on the culture, the context, the priorities, the experience of the people who are building it. And that means that technology can be shaped by the societies and the communities who want to use it. I think a little bit about um, when people were worrying about the number of car accidents in in cars, in in cities, and we started to talk about self-driving cars. Well, from Silicon Valley's point of view, If you wanna reduce car accidents, what you'll do is you'll create a self-driving car, you'll create a really good computer program that can drive better than a human, which they haven't been able to do in 10, 15 years. (laughs) But if you're living somewhere else, like uh, Copenhagen or Amsterdam with canals where 70% of the population cycles, your solution to reducing car accidents is more bicycles and bicycle lanes and traffic lights for Mm -hmm. bikes. Really? And and so we can see that that the way that people even problematize depends on their context and based on that context that will determine the technologies we build. And so I think what's happened over the last 50 years has been that we started to believe that technology could only be built by certain types of very special people who were generally men who were generally in the west coast of the US and one or two other places rather than saying technology is something we can all participate in, we can all tool ourselves up in, we can all become makers of it rather than takers. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen once we start to show up and say we want a part of this and we're willing to build ourselves.
0: Well, Azim, we've run out of time, but I want to assure our listeners that I just basically skimmed the surface of your book and there is so much wealth in this book uh, yet to be addressed by the individual reader, I want to encourage our listeners. This is the best book I've read in the last year on this subject, if not many years. Uh, our listeners will remember that I interviewed Martin Ford for his Rise of the Robots in 2016, I guess it was, and mm-hmm. um, and it, it was a it was a fine uh, treatment. But uh, yours brings us all up to date and is so much more comprehensive. Uh, I can't thank you enough for writing the book. Uh, for making yourself available to do this interview, and again, I want to urge our listeners to get out there and get a copy of the Exponential Age by Azim Azar. Azim, thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner.
1: It's really been my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.